the, uh, Sean is also the National Director of Power to Change Student Ministries. Uh, and he spent a lot of time out of town this past summer. Actually, most of the year, you spent a lot of time out of town. So we're always glad when you're among us. Um, today is Every Student Sunday which uh, we've participated in for the last couple years here. And basically what that is, is we're joining today with over 100 churches across Canada who have agreed to put time aside to pray for the students who will very soon be going back to university and also the students in the university and the leaders among them who will be trying to engage their, their schools uh, in relationship, meaningful, intentional relationship and friendship, but also uh, engage them in the gospel in the days ahead. So we're going to take some time to hear about that and pray about that later on in the service here today. But Sean, it's great to have you with us. Um, you've been away for a little while. I know some traveling. How, how, what's your summer been like so far? You've been... Well, uh, Nancy, <clears throat> Nancy and the kids and I just got back from four weeks in Ontario where uh, we had the privilege of participating, leading, speaking, being engaged in uh, four different conferences and retreats. And then we also had a week... Uh, uh, with my parents uh, at our at their cottage just outside mm -hmm. Ottawa. So two things I miss about Ontario most. Mm -hmm. I love Alberta, but two things I miss most is my family and and um, Lake Country. Uh, there's no, lakes in Ontario are just the best. So yeah. it was fun. They're pretty good. Fantastic. Well, we're glad to have you back with us here after a time of rest and uh, hopefully you're refreshed, mm -hmm. ready to get back at it. So fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Well, good morning and. Uh, Thank you for having me here this morning and participating in this Sunday, Every Student Sunday. This is, uh, I think, the third annual uh, year that we have participated in this. And, and uh, as Mark said, there's over 100 churches who have, have signed up to spend some portion of today praying for students. And, uh, and so I'm looking forward to leading you in some of that uh, this morning. I also just want to thank you for your continued support and care for Nancy and I as we uh, as we minister amongst uh, the people group called university students here in Canada. And uh, as you'll see today, um, it also requires a certain amount of language learning. I appreciate so much what Sonia shared with us and, uh, and, and the, the, the struggle being a missionary of understanding a culture and bringing good news to them about who Jesus is. And I appreciate that so much. And here in Canada, I would say increasingly, as we reach across generations, uh, the need for the church to become missionary-like here in Canada is actually increasing. And I hope to share that a little bit with you today as we talk about peace, as we talk about the, the God of the universe who leads us into the future. Uh, one of the challenges um, for us is being at peace when everything around us seems to be changing. And, um, and so I want you to imagine just you can close your eyes, however you enjoy imagining. Imagine for a moment that you are at peace. Maybe you already are, maybe you're not, but imagine that you are at peace. What do you, what do you picture in your imagination as you think about being at peace? Take a breath. Be at peace. Where did your mind go? Well, for many of us, I imagine, <laughs> we, uh, we imagine something like this, uh, sitting in a lawn chair by the water as the sun set. This is, this is an experience I certainly appreciated uh, just a week ago in Ontario. Uh, and <clears throat> peace is often defined by the freedom, freedom from conflict of any kind, a freedom from work, 
Uh, freedom from struggle, freedom from pain, freedom from suffering, freedom from loneliness, freedom from disruption, freedom from change. And I do believe there is a deep longing in the human spirit for this kind of peace because it is the call home. The aching of the human heart is to be with God in perfect freedom. And this is what we are created for. And so it burns in each one of us. There's a reason we picture this, this place of freedom as the place of peace. But this freedom from pain, suffering, disruption, is not the daily experience for us as Christians or indeed for any of us as humankind, really. In fact, Jesus says, in this world, you will have much trouble. You will have tribulation. And so how is it that we can experience peace in a world that Jesus, the God who promises peace, also promises tribulation. In reality, this is more how we experience life. We set up our lawn chair on the beach and we expect it to go all well. <laughs> we pursue peace and whatever we do, it just seems like something outside of our control threatens to wipe us out, to disrupt our carefully controlled environment whether it's physical fragility, financial instability, relational conflict, just the constant change. These are all at war with our ability to achieve that idyllic sense of peace. And so today I want to talk more in depth just about one of these changes that seem outside of our control, that cause us to be anxious, that threaten our peace. One of the things I got to do in Ontario was spend a little bit of time with uh, Rick Heemstra, who is the lead researcher for the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada. And uh, some of the research he's done recently um, uh, is just even compiling uh, census data in Canada around church attendance. And so this graph here shows the weekly worship attendance, and, and this includes all religions, not just Christianity. Uh, the weekly worship attendance of Canadians from 1946 to 2000. And 15. Um, since 2015, the Canadian government has stopped asking this question for whatever reason. So, <clears throat> what you can see there is it's, I mean, it's pretty self evident uh, that weekly attendance in any place of worship has significantly decreased over the last 60 years. That's probably not a surprise to you. Um, the fastest being, uh, the fastest decline being among mainline Protestant churches. Uh, the slowest shrinking being evangelicals, which we would be lumped into. But it still is shrinking by just over 10% in the last 20 years. Um, so the fastest growing religious group, so the, the one group that is growing in Canada, uh, is those who identify themselves as having no religion. So they in the literature, a lot of people are referring to these folks, this people group, as the nuns. Um, they have no religion. They have no formal community uh, of, of, of religious affiliation. And so one of the areas of life where departure from the church community is most felt, is at that, or is, is most, um, you know, the researcher also shows that uh, points when people leave the church tend to be at particular points of transition. And the biggest point of transition in a person's life happens when they're 18 to 25, somewhere in there, 18 to 30 range is, is one of those significant departure zones when people leave Christian community. And so for this reason, Power to Change has embarked on a three-year 
research project with uh, the EFC, Evangelical Fellowship of Canada, and InterVarsity and a few other partner organizations to determine why so many young Christians have, are leaving church communities during this stage of their life. Because as a student ministry working on the campuses of Canada, this is, this is the place that I and our staff work. Just to put it in context, Power to Change works on about 60 university and college campuses across Canada. We have just over 230 staff working amongst this people group. Uh, there's about 2.2 million university students, university and college students in Canada. Um, and uh, very few of them uh, know anything about Jesus or even know a Christian. And so a, a big part of our role as Power to Change in partnership with InterVarsity and other local churches that are working to reach students is to bring the gospel to a generation of Canadians. And, uh, and so we wanted to learn more about them. And I wanna share a bit of that finding with you. Now anytime we start talking about generational changes, it, it starts to feel a little bit like this. Um, there's a sense that the younger generation is just after uh, disrupting um, the older generations. <laughs> There's this sense of, of, of significant disruption. It's like, why, why can't we just all get along? And depending how old you are, I can guarantee like, how you respond to this image behind me. Some of you are deeply disturbed by this, <laughs> and some of you find it very funny. And those who find it funny are probably younger, and those who find it disturbing are probably older. But this, what I'm about to do here, is not an attempt to disrupt your tea. Um, you know, but I will say that the question, why can't we just go back to the way it used to be, um, is, is not the way forward. It's not how I feel and sense that Jesus is leading us. And as I talk with other Christian leaders, as we look at this research, there is a deep sense that God is at work in this generation. There is something going on that is significant and different and that we have an opportunity to step into it, but it will not be the same as it was before. And so, what is some of this research? I'll share with you. Uh, just three points. I, I'm not trying to take you to class here. But um, the first point is that delayed adulthood is a real thing. Uh, that's not maybe a surprise to many of you. That uh, generally, uh, emerging adults is what they're uh, called now. Uh, this, this group of people between 18 and 25 to 30, this, this group of emerging adults is actually delayed in, in becoming adults. And what does it mean to be an adult? Well, if you know, hashtag adulting is a big thing right now. Everyone's trying to even understand what is adulthood and how do we step into it. Um, <clears throat> generally, uh, sociologists see five major, or I'll say four major decisions that, uh, that indicate someone is stepping into adulthood. It's not, it's not hard and fast, it's just kind of a, a general indication to measure um, things by. And so one is the ability of, or, or uh, a person's purchasing a property, their own property, their own house. Um, the identification of a career. So they've chosen a path, some kind of career-like, um, not just a, a job, but they're actually choosing a career, a field of of work and, and expertise. Um, so if they've made commitments in those two areas, they're taking steps into adulthood. Uh, another sign of adulthood is long-term committed relationships. So marriage or even, you know, more generally uh, common law, both of which are decreasing rapidly. 
Uh, a lot of people think just marriage is actually decreasing, but actually uh, the instances of people living uh, together in common law relationships, long-term committed, non-married folks, is actually decreasing at just a rapid rate. And so what you find is more and more people are just living alone. Um, <clears throat> and then having kids become something uh, that people are doing much and much later. And so this process of adulthood is really about the differentiation of an individual from their parents, from their family of origin. And that differentiation, that, that ability to step into, you know, I'm not Gwen and Peter's son anymore, but I am Sean. Uh, that process is a, is, is a, is a big deal. And, and in fact, it's, it's biological, it's just very natural, it's just part of life and has been part of life since there has been life. And, and, and yet, the capacity for this 18 and 25-year-old group to step into, to make those commitments, to make that, those differentiating decisions has been decreasing over the last 20 or 30 years, where it's just harder to buy your first house. It costs a lot of money and most of them don't have it. <laughs> so they can't do it. It's not that maybe they don't want to, but they just can't. It's become increasingly difficult to choose and establish a career. It's, it's, it's become at least less socially normal to commit into a long-term relationship at an earlier age. And so these things, this, it's just delayed, and there's some reasons for that I'll get to. And then of course having kids is something that people just don't do as early anymore. And so society seems, it seems strange when you meet a 22-year-old with kids. It's just, oh, something's wrong here. It's just, it just seems strange to people. Whereas 30, 40 years ago, that was normal. And so what we found is that, the, um, that five to seven years is what emerging adulthood has been delayed by. So when you think about that, for me in university context, that means I'm working with 18 to 22-year-olds most of whom are five to seven years delayed in their capacity to make adult decisions. And so um, ministry to them uh, just is beginning to look different. <laughs> we can't do it the same way we did 30 or 40 years ago because it's different. And so one of, the, one of the things that our research looked at is actually that uh, one of the areas that this group of people is differentiating from their parents. One of the places they have capacity to differentiate is in their faith. And so when you can't, when you can't move out of your mom and dad's basement and you can't choose a career and you don't know if you can get into a long-term relationship or have kids, one of, the, one of the only ways you can actually be different from your parents is to say, I'm not gonna go to church with you. And they don't actually say that so much because as we'll see in a minute, uh, that our society also has a deeper value on social harmony in this generation than any before. And so a huge value on social harmony. And so they don't enter into conflict with their parents, they just get busy. They take up hockey, they get a job at the mall, they, they, um, they find work to do, and all of a sudden church becomes uh, not a really, it, it just can't happen. And so they just differentiate by, by drift. And so, uh, this just is. So what are we gonna do about it? That's one thing, that's delayed adulthood is a real thing. Uh, or emerging adulthood, I think I prefer that. Let's call it emerging adulthood. Um, <clears throat> the second thing I wanna share with you is one of the things, we interviewed thousands of 
people in this 18 to 25 year old category who identified themselves as Christian. They believed, uh, they were not nominal Christians, okay? So these were people who were actually Christian or or at least self-identified as Christian. One of the things that was very common was when they actually were asked what the Christian, what it meant to be Christian, the most common answer was to be a good person. To be a good person, and what does that mean? Well, it means obeying the Ten Commandments. Well, what are they? I can't remember. But I think they're don't steal, don't lie, and don't kill. And I can't remember any others. And it was phenomenal how often those three were the three that were remembered. (laughs) And the first one, which is love the Lord your God, like have no other gods before me. Uh, It's not entered into the, the belief system. And so they identify themselves as Christian, but they recognize that what it means to be Christian is to be a good person, and what it means to be a good person is don't lie, don't steal, don't kill. And so their understanding of their uh, Christian faith is, is, is not particularly great. Um, and in fact, uh, Rick Heemstra would title what the bulk of these young people actually believe is especially those who have... So we interviewed a lot of people uh, people both who are still in church and who have left church. People who have left the church but still identify themselves as Christian. So most of the people who have left church who identify themselves as Christian would have this, what's called a universal Gnostic religious ethic, but they call it Christian. Um, There are some who are still coming to church who also share this universal religious Gnostic ethic, but it's more common in those who have left. So it's not everybody, but this this is a big theme, and maybe you will see it in people that you talk to, or even in some of the temptation that you feel in your own heart. So what the universal Gnostic religious ethic is, is it basically means that all religions are the same, universal. If you can get behind their external trappings, this realization is understood as special knowledge for the enlightened. So young adults will generally say, all religions are functional, they're all the same, They all just try and help you be a better person. And I understand that. My parents don't get it, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that they don't get it. And so this is like special knowledge that they have that their parents don't have. And um, and so, but but it, it doesn't matter. There's no need to convince your parents that you're right and they're wrong because what this allows you to do is to attend church, to come on Christmas and Easter, in, in perfect harmony with your parents because you see the goodness of religion. All religion is basically the same and it's helping you be a better person. And so I can come and I can participate. I don't need to be in conflict with you, but I know something you don't. And that is the Gnostic part. And, and it's more Gnostic than that. Not, Gnosticism is actually, it uh, is about how um, uh, we, we gain special knowledge by looking inside of ourselves, by delving into the spiritual rather than the physical. So Gnosticism uh, has been around for for a very long time, uh, before Christ even, and it was one of the first main threats to the Christian church as a heresy. Gnosticism invaded the church, and Gnosticism teaches that the world is inherently evil, that that the physical is evil, and that the spiritual is good. And so that the that you know, God is spirit uh, kind of plays into this. The Christian faith actually, uh, there's elements that could, 
could tie into this, and then there's elements that contradict it, and I'll get to that in a minute. But Gnosticism teaches that the spiritual is good and the physical is bad. And that the point of life is to overcome the physical limitations and attain, attain spiritual uh, um, enlightenment, kind of. And you gain that enlightenment by, by, by searching inside yourself. Uh, and this is, this is a huge worldview today. If you think about the pantheon of gods that, uh, that have captured our culture, let's call them Marvel superheroes. If you think about them, who are the most powerful? The most powerful are the magicians. They're the ones who have special insight into the real world that happens in behind the physical. So I won't spoil it, but I could talk, I could do this whole thing just off uh, Infinity Wars. Infinity Wars is a lesson in Gnosticism. That's what it, it is. <clears throat> and, and, um, more than that, the invention of the cell phone and the internet and the social media, uh, actually what has happened is there is, a, there is a spiritual element to the digital world. It's ethereal. It, it can be, um, and, and, and what, uh, how Gnosticism is expressed largely in young people today is their attempt to manipulate the physical world through the spiritual or digital world. And so magic was a big deal to the Gnostics because that's what it was. Magic was about applying the spiritual realities, the true good spiritual realities, and, and bending the physical, the bad, the evil, to the good. And so magic was a big part of Gnosticism. And the magic of today is Instagram. <laughs> it's why kids take 25 selfies of themselves in order to somehow control or manipulate the physical world that is in front of them or, or that is even somehow constraining them and, and, and come out of that, supersede it, and show the world some projected reality, some truer nature of themselves on Instagram. And so you have this, this kind of digital magic going on. <clears throat> now, they're not all thinking quite this way, but when you interview enough of them, you start seeing the pattern that what is digital is good and what is real is bad. One of the most common phrases we heard from this group of people was, they were not looking forward to being part of the real world. They talked about the real world as something out there that someday they knew they would have to step into that they really did not want to. And so what you've had in this generational switch is there was once a generation that said, I can't wait to get my hands on the world. I'm gonna change the world. I'm gonna make a difference in this world. I'm gonna, you know, this is the baby boomer ethic. I'm gonna work my tail off and I can make a difference. Anyone can make a difference. This is the American dream. And, and, and there's this sense of like, I, I can't wait to free myself from the ch shackles of childhood and like make my mark on the world. Well, this generation doesn't see that as exciting at all. <laughs> they rather like, how can I stay in this place of emerging adulthood as long as possible, where I don't have to make long-term commitments, where social networking is easy, where every day is new, where there's no long-term commitments that would shackle me. So, <clears throat> Gnostic religious ethic. Religion is functional, it fulfills function. And the most important thing is to preserve social harmony. Good human beings preserve social harmony. <clears throat> and so, in this universal Gnostic religious ethic, you actually have no need for God, no need for heaven, no need for hell. It's just 
It's just about being a good person. So this is the main religion of this generation. And, uh, and it's, and it's uh, I share this next slide with you just because it's good for you to know the lingo, maybe. So there's three, uh, three primary fears that we identified as we interviewed these thousands of, of young people. There's three big fears that would define this generation. The first is fear of missing out. So some of these flow out of social media. It's, it's the effect of social media on us. So the fear of missing out. There are so many opportunities coming at us all the time that if you're living your life in this, this magical digital world, you, you, there's always something better coming. So why would I commit to coming to youth on Friday just in case there might be something, like my friends may throw a party and then I'd miss it and then I'd be the laughingstock on, Sunday, on Monday when I get back to school. So I won't commit to anything because there might be something better. The fear of passionless monotony. The fear, and, and this is kind of an indictment on, I think, on us as the older generations, is that the younger generation sees a life of commitment to, say, uh, in marriage or in a career as exceedingly boring. And, and the worst thing that you could do with your life is be boring. Because in their world, attention is grabbed by thumbs and hearts. And so you do not get thumbs and hearts if you are boring. You get thumbs and hearts if you are exciting, if you are amazing, if you are beautiful, if you are brilliant, if you are super creative. And so, so kind of being normal is boring. And, and boring is bad because you don't get any attention. You don't get any love. And if you don't get any love, then do you even exist? And so this fear of passionless monotony and what's, what it is on us, and uh, Nancy and I, I'll just take this as a moment. Nancy and I are celebrating 18 years of, of marriage, of, of passion-filled monotony. Let's call it that. No, no. <laughs> We have five kids. Um, the, no, the, the, uh, it can be, ex <laughs> maybe that was too far, sorry. Um, uh, marriage is awesome. Marriage is waking up next to the same person every day. There's a relational intimacy there that just each day is, is, uh, is growing. Now, some days are not as fun as others. It's not all exciting but one of the things that that this world is constant i think one of the biggest things that is against us is our world specializes our western culture specializes in distraction uh, neil postman has an article that he wrote in 1980 something and he said uh, we're amusing ourselves to death it's, it's prophetic if you ever look it up on the internet it's, it's totally prophetic he basically says that all we're doing is, is teaching ourselves not to ask the hard questions, to step into real relationship, to be, we just amuse ourselves and we do it to the point of death. And so the fear of passionless monotony and then the fear of not being amazing. So again, linked to social media, if it's not, if it's not something I can put on Instagram, why would I do it? Because if I do it and I can't put it on Instagram, did it really happen? I mean, this is, it sounds silly to some of you. Some of you are like, this makes no sense. But I'm imagining to some of you, this makes a lot of sense. <clears throat> so, how does Jesus bring peace in the midst of fear? How does a life of following Jesus become more than monotonous? How does Jesus love me 
even when I fail, even when I'm not amazing. Now, for some in this room, your approach to the realities of emerging adulthood would echo that of John Wayne. So, you'd be tempted to react like this. Um, how's it going? This one's good. Right? How many relate to that? That was your childhood, right? Um, certainly, my dad would often explain this was how the way he grew up and tried to put that on me. And, and for those of you, you've probably heard your parents all talk about this is the way they were parented. If you didn't know how to do something, someone picked you up and threw you into it so that you would do it. No need to be f afraid. Someone would just push you in. So there is a sense that, that maybe all we need to do to get over emerging adulthood is like kick everybody out of our houses and tell them to go get a job. That probably isn't going to work. It's not working. Or maybe that's the better way of saying it. It's not working. <laughs> it's not working. And so let's try a different way. One of the amazing things we found in this research is the single largest or most significant factor to whether or not an emerging adult continued participating in Christian community through that transition period of 18 to 25 was whether or not they had a mentor. Someone outside of their family who simply came alongside them and encouraged them and negotiated a role at the adult table for them. Mentorship is what uh, Rick decided to call this. It's not some kind of scary program. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's just willing to be an encourager, to, to make space. Mentors are those who call out what God has placed inside. When they see something in a young person, they just they take this extra step to come and say, hey, you did, you did a good job. You know, when you, when you did that little teaching moment, that was amazing. And all of a sudden, a teacher is born. Um, you know, you're, you're an excellent singer. Uh, you, should, you should join the worship team. And all of a sudden, a new worship leader is born. And, and so, it's just it's seeing what's inside someone and encouraging them. Not falsely, but truly. They are reintroducers. Mentors are people who, who actually say, okay, you know this person as Gwen and Peter's son, but let me introduce you as Sean. So they're, they're, they're people who, who reintroduce this emerging adult as themselves into the community of adults. They're negotiation advisors. So they're the ones at the table who say, you know what, I think this person could do that. And the leaders are all like, mm, I don't know, I don't know. Well, I will make space for them. Now, they have to still step in and actually take on the challenge, but I'll make space for them. And so mentors are the people who make space. They, they kind of elbow space at the table and say, let this person in. Let them try. And then they walk with that person because they're afraid of not being amazing. They, they walk with them and encourage them and uh, allow them to fail. They are, mentors are a, a source of con continuity. So this next graph um, illustrates this point. So um, these are, this is the, the group, the subgroup of the thousands that we interviewed that moved away from home to go to university. So these are the mover awayers. They went away. They left home. 65% of them who indicated that they were in regular contact with a mentor, someone not their parents, um, a mentor, 65% uh, of them um, 
joined a new church community. Compared to 20% who said they've never had a mentor, uh, only 20% of those who uh, entered into new church community. So that's a staggering difference for those who leave whether or not they will continue in Christian community. It's one of those natural breaks, right? When they leave home, it's one of those natural breaks where they don't have to be, they can preserve social harmony, but they've left home, so now they have their own decisions to make and they can differentiate. Now those who have had a mentors actually will stick into Christian community and differentiate in other ways. They may go to a church, you know, they might go to a Presbyterian church instead of a Baptist church. <laughs> or or so they, they may, you know, they may do other things to differentiate. They will differentiate, by the way. If you're, a parent, if you're a parent here, this should be helpful to you. Your kids will differentiate from you. And your job is to allow that to happen in the most healthy way possible, realizing you can't control it all. But <clears throat> mentorship's a big deal. So, next slide. What does mentorship look like? Uh, so to those of you who are older, one of the biggest steps you can take is to encourage a young person near you, to speak kindly to them and to help them negotiate space at the adult table, to share with them lessons you have learned about Jesus' unfailing love in times of trial. Not forcing yourself on them, but uh, encouraging them, inviting them into dialogue and conversation. And, how, and, and teaching how Jesus' presence brings peace in the midst of struggle. So we need to provide space and grace for young people to try things. And yes, even they need to try things and not be amazing at it, and that's okay. And so, um, unlike the force, however, uh, which is a very Gnostic idea, by the way, <laughs> if you realize one of the, you know, the two biggest pantheons of, 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 of heroes in our culture are Star Wars and Marvel, right? Every kid. That's all their toys. Star, Star Wars and Marvel, every movie. The story in all of those is all, it's all Gnostic. It's all about applying the spiritual onto a broken physical world. It's also about the search inside yourself. If you've ever thought about how many of the superheroes have parents, how many of them are orphaned? Just do a mental, if you know any superheroes, just a, a challenge, I challenge you. Think of some that have parents. Very few do. Luke didn't, well he did. But he didn't know his father. <laughs> Again, no spoilers, but he meets them at one point. <clears throat> but they grow up without their parents. Almost all of them grow up without their parents. It's the most common hero journey in our culture, is that they grow up without their parents. They grow up by going inside themselves. Everything they needed to become a superhero was inside themselves. Luke had the force. Oh, Spider-Man, he got bit by a spider. But it was inside him, and he had to discover it. Spider-Man was orphaned twice. I mean, this is the story. And, um, and, and it's, very, it's very Gnostic. Anyway, <clears throat> so what we need to do as the church is actually teach ourselves regularly how Jesus is not Gnostic, because that's the, that's the message coming at us. So Jesus is better than the force. He is always there. He is always with us. But he's not some inanimate force. He doesn't have a dark side. He's a person. And he calls us into relationship. And so that brings us to our passage this morning. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. 
First of all, this peace is a gift from Jesus. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. When Jesus gives something, he gives it freely. He gives it freely. This peace is given to us by Jesus, not something we can work for, not something we can attain, something that is simply given to us. Second, this peace is available at all times and in every circumstance. Romans 8 puts it this way. Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Know in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The peace that God offers is not circumstantial. It's relational. It's a peace that is manifest in his presence. Psalm 23 puts it this way. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me. In the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You see, Paul puts it twice in this Second Thessalonians passage. The Lord of peace himself, the Lord be with you. The peace that Jesus gives us is in relationship with him. It's being in connection to him because, because he died. And when he died, the veil in the temple tore from top to bottom. And the Holy of Holies was released. The presence, the place where God lived was released. And in Acts 2, after spending time with the risen Lord, the disciples received the Holy Spirit and he indwelt them. And Jesus promised that I will be with you to the very end of the age. Jesus made a way by his death and resurrection to show us that the physical is not bad. God created the world. He created it and he said, it is good. And then he became a man. He became a man with flesh and bone. And he, and he knows what it is to be afraid. He knows what it is to be shamed. He knows what it is to be hungry, 
to wonder if anyone's paying attention. And when they do, whether it's good, he knows all these things. He's experienced them. He experienced a broken world and yet was without rebellion. He obeyed. And so he obeyed to the point of death that the veil might be torn. And then he rose again. And the phenomenal thing is he rose in some kind of physical body that I don't fully understand, but it was, it could eat and it was touched and it, it still had wounds that you could put hands in. And so it's weird that his glorified body had wounds and scars, mark, marks of, of suffering. And in heaven, I think often we think it's, you know, we're, we, we almost buy into this Gnostic idea that heaven is some kind of mystical place of, of ethereal beings uh, floating around on clouds, and that's not heaven at all. It's actually a very real place, a very physical place, where our bodies are somehow still very recognizable and still even marked by our past suffering and pain in some way that I don't fully understand, and yet they don't limit us. They don't carry the, the burden of the pain. There's a freedom there. There's a freedom in that place when one day we see him face to face and are made like him. <clears throat> and this is the peace that we can experience now as we walk with him and that we look forward to experiencing in fullness one day yet to come. <clears throat> so, whether it's change or sickness financial instability, whatever the challenges, the disruptors that are coming at you, recognize that Jesus is with you. And in his presence, there is peace. Knowing that the God of the universe, the one that did speak all things into being, loves you so much that he was willing to die in your place, that you might be with him forever. And that truth is good news. That truth brings peace in every circumstance. And so, finally, he says, be anxious about nothing, but in everything, by prayer, bring your request to God. That's what Paul says in Philippians 4. And, um, and so we're gonna enter a time of prayer. And for some of you, prayer is a very normal part of your life, and for others, prayer might be a new thing. And feel no pressure today to, to have to pray, but we're gonna do something a little bit different in that I'd like to encourage you to gather with two or three people around you and pray. And if you don't feel comfortable, you don't have to do, do it at all. Please don't feel any pressure. Um, but if you would like to, please do. And uh, prayer is just talking to God. He is with us, he's with us now. And so we have an opportunity to bring our requests to him. Our lamentations, our which means like we, we just have opportunity to bring all of our things to Jesus. And so I want you to start by giving thanks that the God of the universe, that the God of peace is with us, with you. Then I'd like you to pray for students as they begin a new chapter in their adventure. Many for the first time this September. Others are entering school for the second or seventh or 20th time, I don't know. But you can pray for students as they enter school. Uh, that they would remember, especially for Christians, that the God of peace is with them. And for those who do not know Jesus, that they would encounter him. And then pray that we, the church, would have wisdom to know how to engage this next generation in the gospel, in Christian community. Pray for wisdom. 
Pray for courage to face the change and recognize that Jesus goes first. He says, follow me. And so the great truth of that is that Jesus is going first into the future and we simply need to follow. May we have eyes to see and ears to hear what he is doing. So I'm going to, uh, it's just going to be quiet for the next five minutes. You can turn to someone beside you and uh, spend a few minutes praying just these three requests and then I'll close.